0: Now much of what we'll speak about in this conference, I've, I've talked about elsewhere, but it's not because I can't think of other things to say. Uh, there's certain themes that I really, uh, I repeat because I feel almost an, an urgency to speak about them. Although there'll be some citations, uh, the whole talk has too many sources. To cite all of them. They added, the quotes, like I always do, have been edited and cut and pasted, paraphrased and so forth. It's not an academic exercise, anyway. i Maria Priscila. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. This account is based largely on that of Francis Xavier Weniger. During the reign of Diocletian, a Diocletian was the Roman Emperor, a great persecutor of Christians. He ruled from 284 to 305. During the reign of Diocletian lived a man named Genesius. Now, Genesius hated Catholics with a passion. He's an immoral, insolent man. He's devoted heart and soul to idolatry. He's also a famous pagan actor, comedian, and playwright, the kind of guy who would fit right into Hollywood. Realizing that uh, nothing would please the emperor more than mocking Christians, he acquainted himself with the ceremonies of baptism and wrote a skit representing that sacrament with all ceremonies as ridiculously as possible. The emperor, his court, and a great crowd were all present on the day of the performance the comedy routine began. Genesius pretended to be sick and he fell down and called on his friends to bring him something to relieve his suffering. When they had done this he said, I feel like I'm going to die. I want to become a Christian and they should baptize me. And so everything's brought on stage uh, that's used in baptism. A pagan actor playing a priest came on stage in order to baptize the poor ailing Genesius. All the questions were put to him that are made to those who would be about baptized. The ceremony was performed in so ludicrous a manner that the emperor and all the people are shouting with laughter. At the very moment that the actor poured the water over his head and the pagan actors were scoffing and blaspheming in the most uh, sacrament of baptism, God illuminated the heart and mind of Genesius with a ray of divine grace. Suddenly, he could see the truth of Christianity, and loudly and earnestly proclaimed his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, his companions had no idea what had just happened, and so they're continuing this blasphemous mockery. When the whole ceremony is performed, they throw a white robe over Genesius. It's mocking the garment that, in those days, uh, was given to newly baptized adults. Even, and they presented him to the people amid great shouts and, and hilarity. Genesius turned to the Emperor and other spectators and confessed to him with great dignity what had taken place within him, that until until that day, in his pagan blindness, he had scoffed at Christianity had intended for everyone's amusement to mock baptism with his performance, but that his heart had suddenly changed during the sacrilegious skit and he desired to become a Christian. He said that before they baptized him, he'd seen an angel. Angel showed him a book which all his past iniquities had been recorded. and he assured him to all be washed away by holy baptism. When the baptismal water was poured over him, he had seen the heavens open, felt a hand touch him, and then he saw that all those sins were wiped off the pages of this holy book. He renounced idolatry, stated that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the Redeemer of the world, and that he would henceforth live and die a Christian. And it was the death penalty to be a Christian. He closed his speech with a passionate exhortation of the emperor and all present to follow his example and embrace Christ, worship the one true God. Well, initially, everybody was laughing uproariously because they thought it was part of the skit. So the laughter started dying down as it became clear to the emperor and audience that Genesius was not joking. It wasn't an act. The emperor, realizing that Genesius was serious, became enraged and gave orders that his garments should be immediately torn from him. He should be whipped with scourges and clubs before all the people and then cast in a prison. Pautia and the prefect, received orders to renew this punishment daily until Genesius would abandon his new faith and sacrifice to the pagan gods. So Genesius was stretched on the rack, torn with iron hooks, burnt with torches. As Genesius was being tortured, the prefect urged him to submit to the imperial command and sacrifice to the pagan gods that he might save his life. Genesius replied, your emperor is but a mortal man. Whoever desires the favor of such may seek it of him. I pray to the mortal king of heaven and earth and will never forsake him. I know that he who received me in holy baptism is the true king. And I repent for having so often mocked and offended him. I will not obey Diocletian, whose reign will soon be over and will one day become his naught. You may torture me, therefore, as much as you like. I will remain faithful to my God. If you had the power to kill me a hundred times, you would not be able to take him out of my heart or my mouth. Paul was uh, provoked at his fearlessness, repeated his words to the emperor who ordered him beheaded. That sentence was executed in the year of our Lord, 303. Thus, St. Genesius, who from idolatry became a Christian, from a scoffer of Christianity, a fearless confessor of the Lord received the crown of martyrdom. Now, the Acts don't mention it, but I've thought a lot about it. I'm just going to insert my opinion. I assume that when St. Genesius had that vision at the same time and got that grace, there was a grace given to the actor playing the priest to suddenly intend to do what the church intended to do and not mock at that moment. That's my assumption and that's why the baptism took because if it had simply been a mockery it wouldn't have taken. He would have got some kind of baptism of blood, certainly, at the end, but it's obvious from the acts, and these are authentic acts, that he got it. So that's my assumption. That's just an insertion into it, but I, I, I think we'll find out in the next slide, but I'm pretty sure that's what happened. You see these kind of things in the martyrs regularly, where one of the soldiers him off all of a sudden gets the grace and embraces it, too. You can read St. Albans, the story of the martyrdom of St. Albans. In, in the venerable uh, beads, history of England, ecclesiastical history of England. And when St. Albert's marching off to be martyred, one of the the soldiers with him decides, I'm gonna be a Catholic too, and is baptized in his blood right then. As a consequence, he got the grace, even though he's marching the guy off to his death. Of course, the modernists, they doubt everything, seem to think it's a legend that St. Genesius never existed. But he's already venerated in Rome, within the very century he died. In the fourth century, there's a church built in his honor already in Rome, so there's people that would have been alive that knew of him. They may or may may not have seen it, but they certainly it's it's within living memory of him. And that church was repaired in 714 by Pope Gregory III. So if you come across any stuff, you can just ignore that it's typical modernism you know, babble. St. Genesius' feast day is August 25th. He's a patron saint of actors, lawyers, barristers, clowns, comedians, converts, dancers, epileptics, musicians, pinners, stenographers, and victims of torture. He's a patron saint of victims of torture. That's going to be important to know, so don't forget that. The very same hand of the Lord who instantly turned Saul, a persecutor of the church, into Saint Paul the Great Apostle, instantly turned Genesius from a pagan into a saint. In the very act, a public act, a sacrilegious act of mocking holy baptism, in that very act, now think about that, the very act of publicly mocking holy baptism, an immoral pagan burning with hatred of Christ and his church, An immoral pagan who deserved to be struck down in the very act of a sacrilegious mockery is instead instantly converted. Think about that. That's the mercy to God. And think about this God's mighty hand hasn't lost any of its power. No matter how great the sinner, no matter how vicious the man, God can still, in an instant, convert him. It's a good reminder that although we should hate sin and we must hate sin, we should be ever so careful never to despise the sinner. There but for the grace of God go, you are I anyway. And we don't know what that sinner might not turn out someday to be a Saint Genesius. What a beautiful example of martyrdom. Martyr is the Greek word for witness. The martyrs are amazing witnesses to the absolute importance of the holy things, to the absolute importance of our relationship with Christ, with his mother, with the Holy Church, to the absolute importance of the truths of our faith, that these things are well worth dying for. They're well worth dying for. And, with a little reflection, we can see that his martyrdom, his witness, teaches us that if these things are well worth dying for, and they are, then they must be worth living for. And if we truly take on such a supernatural perspective, what a deep meaning that gives to our faith, what a profound meaning that gives to our life. Any truth that's worth dying for is worth living for. What are you willing to die for? It's a serious question. I can't answer it for you. What are you willing to die for? Are you afraid to die? If so, why? Are you afraid of a particular judgment? If so, why? What are you doing about that? You're going to die. No one gets out of this alive. You're going to die. What's worth dying for? What are you willing to die for? What do the martyrs tell us? When you look at that crucifix, what does that tell you? Any, worth, any truth that's worth dying for is worth living for. What are you living for? What are you living for? It's good things to meditate on as we approach Holy Week. What are you living for? You don't need me to tell you. And most Americans, and that certainly includes Catholics, are living principally for the things of this world. That's not even remotely a controversial claim. Spring break is going on all over our country. Doesn't even seem to raise an eyebrow. What kind of country is that? We claim we're a Christian country. That's a laugh. It's public hedonism. And all these poor kids are tangled up in it. We're Catholics. We claim we're following him. What does he have to say about how we ought to live? we we'll turn to the scriptures. In fact, one of my favorite scriptures. It's the Gospel of St. Matthew. <clears throat> chapter 6 verses 31 to 33 Be not anxious therefore saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewith shall we be clothed for after all these things do the heathens seek for your father knoweth that you have need of all these things seek ye therefore first the kingdom of God and his justice And all these things shall be added unto you. Close quote, inspired, inerrant word of God. It isn't that we don't need those things. We do need those things. We need to keep things in perspective. I love that scripture. Be not anxious, therefore, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the heathens. For your Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Seek ye therefore first the kingdom of God and his justice. And all these things shall be added unto you. So our Lord commands us to not worry about our temporal needs, but rather put our trust in the Heavenly Father to turn our focus away from the things of the world and direct our minds and our hearts towards the things of heaven. To lift up our eyes from earthly horizons, to seek first the kingdom of God and his justice, and the temporal things will come in their place. That raises two obvious questions. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? And how can we tell if we're doing it? What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? And how can each one of us tell? He's doing it. In order to answer these questions, we better have a better idea, we better know what we're talking about when we speak of the Kingdom of God. What is the Kingdom of God? What does that mean? The 1917 Catholic Encyclopedia explains that the majority of Christ's preaching concerns the Kingdom of God, its various aspects, its precise meaning, and the way it is to be attained. According to Christ, the Kingdom of God means not so much a good to be attained or a place, although it includes those meanings. It is rather a tone of mind. It stands for an influence which must permeate men's minds if they would be one with him and to his ideals. The kingdom of God means then the ruling of God in our hearts. It means those principles which are opposed to and separate us from the kingdom of the world and the devil. It means a favorable influence of grace. It means the church as that divine institution whereby we may make sure of attaining the spirit of Christ and so win that ultimate kingdom of God where he reigns without end in the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Thus the Catholic Encyclopedia. So when our Lord speaks the Kingdom of God, He's speaking of a whole group, a whole cluster of related ideas. He's referring to a state of mind, He's referring to a permeating influence in the minds of men which propel them towards unity with God and conformity to God's will and God's commandments. He's referring to the ruling of God in our hearts. He's referring to those principles which oppose us to and separate us from the Kingdom of the world and the devil. He's referring to the favorable influence of grace. He's referring to the Catholic Church. And ultimately, he's referring to the heavenly kingdom of God, where he reigns world without end. So when our Lord speaks the kingdom of God, he's referring not just to heaven, but to a state of being, a way of living, thinking, speaking, acting by men who are headed towards heaven. When he speaks of men seeking that first, he's referring to those men who have turned their focus away from the things of the world and have first directed their minds and hearts towards the things of heaven. He's referring to men who live with their intellects guided by truth and their wills guided by charity, to men who have truly taken to heart the scripture that the truth will set them free. To men who are marked by an absolute devotion to truth, who strive to know and embrace the truth no matter how painful or inconvenient it might be for them personally. To men who also recognize clearly that their wills are made to be guided by charity. Charity, that specifically Christian virtue, that supernatural power that was poured into our souls at baptism and gives a man the ability to love God above all things and his neighbor as himself for love of God. Men who also recognize clearly that their wills have been made to be guided by charity and as a result have also taken to heart the scriptures that even if they should have all knowledge and have all faith, yet have not charity. They are nothing. In other words, they realize that charity is indeed the greatest virtue. In other words, the men who are seeking first the kingdom of God and his justice are those men, and only those men, who decided to be guided by both truth and charity without counting the cost. Without counting the cost. The men who are seeking first the kingdom of God and his justice are those men, and only those men, who decided to be guided by truth and charity without counting the cost. The great French abbot, Father Emmanuel André, discussed this very point in an 1880 essay. I quote, the two great faculties of man are intelligence and will. The intelligence, being more elevated, more noble than the will, sheds light upon the will and reveals to it the object towards which it must bend. It follows that we must have an insatiable desire to know the true and the good, so our will may may not run the risk of going astray, inclining blindly towards an object that is not for us, the true, that is not for us, the good. Close quote. But how many millions, countless millions, are inclining blindly towards objects that are not for them the true, they're not for them the good? How many millions are inclining blindly towards objects that are not for them the true, not for them the good? The millions that incline blindly towards all various perversions. The millions who incline blindly towards drugs. The millions who incline blindly towards money and power. The millions who incline blindly towards human respect and the drive to fit in. To take only one example, the millions veiling in pure images. 20 years ago, you could have never convinced me that in the near future, Practical Catholics. Guys who are still going to mass, who'd be struggling with impurity, and yet, in spite of that, they'd be carrying around triple X movie theaters in their pockets. One of these so called smartphones. And then when the priest told them to get rid of it, they would fight him. It's unbelievable. Where's he getting them? It's not a stupid question. Where's he getting them? Are they really seeking first the kingdom of God and his justice? And when the priest explains these guys, if they try to go to confession, they can't make an honest act of contrition. Because in the act of contrition, they have to promise God, and that is in the Almighty God. They have to promise God that they avoid not only a sin, but the near occasion of sin. And there it is in their pocket. Those are just empty words. They mean nothing. They simply can't make a valid confession unless they remove the occasion of sin. And even if a priest is so ignorant that he actually tries to absolve something like this, there's nothing going to happen. Those words will just ricochet off. That absolution will just ricochet off. It has absolutely no effect. It can't have any effect because the person is living in a near occasion of sin. The man is left in his sins. And if the priest realizes what he's doing, then he's just committed to sacrilege, And that's insane. And it's everywhere. It's like the guy that won't stop using contraception, won't finish the act properly with his wife, or gets drunk, won't give up the booze, won't give up the drugs. It's like the guy who's sinning, he won't give up the girl. It's like the guy in a bad marriage. If any of these guys go to confession, they can't make an honest act of contrition. Because in the act of contrition, they have to promise God they're going to avoid the near occasion of sin. But they're living in the near occasion of sin. And as long as they're not avoiding it, those words mean nothing. Absolution is not some kind of magic formula. The penitent has to have a firm purpose of amendment for the validity of the sacrament. Not a firm purpose to keep right on living in the near occasion of sin and try to cover his bets by going to confession. Won't work. It's insane. And it's Everywhere. Everywhere. of getting them? Are they really seeking first the kingdom of God and His justice? Now we could multiply examples like this all day. But the underlying problem here is perfectly obvious. The sad truth, it's really a terrifying truth, is that to all appearances, because only God can judge the heart's. But all appearances, the majority of our population, and I certainly include the priests and the practical Catholics, tall appearances, the majority of our population, are not seeking first the kingdom of God and his justice. And where is it getting them? Where is it getting them? Unless they change directions, they're going to wind up where they're headed. We continue. Father Emmanuel, quote, we must have an insatiable desire to know the true and the good, so that our will may not run the risk of going astray, inclining blindly towards an object that is not for us the true, that is not for us the good. Now listen, this is in 1880. But the majority of Catholics do not have this hunger, this thirst for the truth, to which our Lord has promised eternal satisfaction. Close quotes, Father Emmanuel. The majority of Catholics do not have this hunger, this thirst for the truth, to which our Lord has promised eternal satisfaction. Boy, is that ever true. It's terrifying. But it's true. You know, it's not a bit uncommon to meet Catholics that know more and a whole lot more about the lives of Hollywood actors than they do about the saints. To know a lot more about football than they do about the gospel. The majority of Catholics do not have this hunger, this thirst for the truth to which our Lord has promised Eternal satisfaction, but the truth, and only the truth, is going to set us free. Think about that. We can't achieve union with Christ without living in the truth. And if we don't have union with Him, we can't be saved. We can't achieve union with Christ without living in the truth, and if we don't have union with Him can't be saved. The truth matters. The truth is worth dying for. It's the truth and only the truth that can set us free. And in that light, let's look more carefully at the absolute necessity of living the truth in order to achieve that union with Christ. To that end, I'll read from a commentary on a specific topic. It was written almost 60 years ago. And it wasn't written for the man in view. It's actually written for nuns. Quote, Since God is truth, union of the soul with God will depend on the degree to which the soul recognizes the truth and is willing to sacrifice all things for the truth. Since God is true, the union of the soul with God will depend on the degree to which the soul recognizes the truth and is willing to sacrifice all things for the truth. Love for God can be equated with love for the truth. Close quote. Is that not the lesson of St. Genesius? Is that not the lesson of each of the holy martyrs? Everyone needs to burn this into his mind since God is truth. Union of the soul with God will depend on the degree to which the soul recognizes the truth and is willing to sacrifice all things for the truth. Love for God can be equated with love for the truth. We continue. In view of this clearly understood fact, it is staggering that religious can play with the truth for their own satisfaction, when God has plainly designed the human intellect for the search for truth for Him. Anyone seeking God needs tremendous honesty, and it is very rare. Let's do that. It is staggering that anyone can play with the truth for his own satisfaction, when God has plainly designed the human intellect for the search for truth for Him. Anyone seeking God needs tremendous honesty, and it is very rare. It is difficult to be honest if you have the bigness required for the virtue of honesty. Whether dishonesty is conscious or unconscious, it prevents the progress of the soul to God. Did everybody hear that? Whether dishonesty is conscious or unconscious, it prevents the progress of the soul God. How can that be? Okay, Potter, I can see why conscious dishonesty prevent the progress of the soul towards God. But how can unconscious dishonesty prevent the progress of the soul towards God? That doesn't seem to make sense. Actually, it's easy to explain. Since God can neither deceive nor be deceived, it's against His nature to build on a lie. Unless unless anyone sees things as they are rather than as she wants them to be, God, by giving her the grace she seeks, would be building on an error. That bears repeating. Since he neither can deceive nor be deceived, it's against God's nature to build on a lie. Unless someone sees things as they are, rather than as he wants them to be, God, by building on giving him the grace he seeks, will be building on an error. Every one of us needs to strive for a simple love for the truth, regardless of how much it pleases or displeases us. The main obstacle to honesty lies in the heart. Facing the inconvenience and trouble ensuing from it. Because it leaves no rest until one does what's right. So true. The main obstacle to honesty lies in facing the inconvenience and trouble ensuing from it. How often do we see people with guilty consciences who just won't allow themselves to face... The inconvenience and troubles their misbehaviors and sins. How often do we see them dream up so many excuses, decide what they want to do and then construct these arguments to justify their sins? Or they trap themselves in so much purposely muddled thinking. Or they occupy themselves with so much useless activity, all in the effort to distract their guilty consciences. But each one of us needs to strive for a simple love for the truth regardless of how much it pleases or displeases us. The main obstacle of honesty lies in the heart, to face the inconvenience and trouble ensuing from it. We continue. Honesty is the virtue by which the child sees that she deserved a spanking. The loose woman admits that she brought her troubles on herself. The drunk confesses that no one else poured the whiskey down his throat. Honesty is the virtue by which the religious sees that only she can stand in the way of God's work in her soul. By which she refuses to lay her failures at the door of persecution, misunderstanding, poor preparation for whatever happens, or any of the countless forms of self-justification. Honesty is the virtue with which she searches her soul for the obstacles to grace, wishing to find them regardless of their unpleasantness. The main stimulus to honesty is a prospect of its rewards, which make the pain involved both acceptable and reasonable. Honesty is the shortest route to truth, that is, to say to God. Honesty is the shortest route to God. The goal is reached through the battle of soul against slavery to self. The truth which makes men free liberates them from the emotional clamor for the immediate physical good, that which is seen, tasted, touched, heard, and smelled. It raises them above the senses where the prize of true love awaits the truly free. And therefore the honest religious, unenchanted by yourself, that awaits the greatest love of all, the love of God. Close quote. These are thoughts they're very much worth meditating on and taking to heart. Very much. A huge amount of work that a priest does if he's really trying to help people grow in holiness, is trying to get them to be honest with themselves and take responsibility. And it's not by pointing things out. People have to take the responsibility. Sure, the church is a disaster. Is that some obstacle God making me be a saint? Sure, societies are falling apart. Did, does this surprise God? I can't become a saint. It is staggering that anyone can play with the truth for his own satisfaction. God has plainly designed the human intellect for the search for truth for him. Anyone seeking God needs tremendous honesty. It's very rare. Whether dishonesty is conscious or unconscious, it prevents the progress of the soul to God. It is against God's nature to build on a lie. Unless someone sees things as they are, rather than as he wants them to be, God, by giving him the grace he seeks, will be building on a lie. Genuine good will depends on honesty, a simple love for the truth, regardless of how much it pleases or displeases her. How common is this sort of honesty? Don't worry about anyone else right now. Look in your own heart. Look in your own heart. Do you have a simple love for the truth, regardless of how much it pleases or displeases you? If we're really serious about the truth, there are two other factors to be weighed besides honesty. Objectivity, objectivity, and dishonesty. Okay, let's briefly consider each in turn. Objectivity. It is not enough to want to be honest. It's not enough to want to be honest. We have to strive to be as objective as possible. Objectivity is the ability to see things as they really are. Subjectivity is seeing things through one's own eyes or as one thinks or imagines them to be. A nun is objective to the degree that she does see things as they are. Christ asked the blind man, What wilt thou that I should do to thee? To which the blind man replied, Rabbi, that I might see. There's nothing the average religious needs more than to see. Her prayer to God should be, Lord, that I might see. She should pray to see things as they are, not as she wishes them to be. The ability of the religious to be objective will determine to a large degree her progress in relation to God and her neighbor. In other words, it's not enough to want to be honest. The Pharisees were so intent on their own ends that they identified their purposes with those of God. Through blind selfishness, they were almost completely subjective about Christ because they saw him as a threat to themselves, the leaders of the people. They saw him as a threat to the Jewish religion and the Jewish people. They could thus wisely conclude it was expedient for one man to die for the nation. Subjectivity made them discard his claims to Messiahship despite the undoubted signs he worked which proved his divinity. Our Lord went out of his way to warn about subjectivity when he told the parable of the unjust servant who, forgiven much himself, throttled his fellow servant for a much smaller crime. His tragedy was he saw everything from his own point of view. Had he not lost nearly all objectivity, he had been the first to see the enormity of what he did. Seeing things from his own little viewpoint, he ultimately destroyed himself. The object of religious life is union with God. It should be the object of each one of us, because that's what baptism means. The object of religious life is union with God. It's all too human for religious to seek God who is a little like herself, but it's hardly being objective. Christ's crucifiers while he was dying on the cross to win for them the grace of faith were screaming at him to come down and they believe in him. Those seeking God on their own terms should not be the least bit surprised if they never find him. Those seeking God on their own terms should not be the least bit surprised if they never find him. The religious who does not end up in his eternal embrace prays a horrible price for willful blindness. Close quote. It's not enough to want to be honest. We have to strive to be as objective as possible. Objectivity is the ability to see things as they really are. Objectivity determines to a large degree our progress in relation to God and our neighbor, those seeking God in their own terms should not be the least bit surprised if they never find them. Wishful thinking won't get you there. Wishful thinking won't get you there. This is a religion of truth. There's 40, 11 religions out there of wishful thinking. This is a religion of truth. Dishonesty. If we're really serious about the truth, obviously we have to rigorously avoid dishonesty. What isn't obvious is that there are some more subtle forms of dishonesty that sometimes can be overlooked, especially in the case where the dishonesty appeals to our own appetites and desires. I quote, Much dishonesty originates in false teaching or misunderstanding of the truth. False teaching comes largely from inept teachers, Misunderstanding the truth comes largely from overemphasis of one truth to the detriment of another. For example, the Church teaches that the sacraments give grace. And the three dollar word, three dollar phrase, ex opere operato. That's a three dollar phrase. It means if there's no obstacle against it. The grace comes from the sacrament itself. Okay. To infer from this, the fact that the more frequently one goes to Holy Communion, the better one becomes is quite misleading. It would be true, all things being equal. But in fact, all things are never equal. Many religious wonder, despite the fact that its members receive communion daily, why the community as a whole is not better than it is, and the members better than they are. Pastors by scores have wondered why so many of their troubles come from the fervent members of the parish. Why the daily communicants can be among the most perverse, centurious, and self-righteous. The fact is, although the sacraments do give grace, ex opere operato... The grace from them works in the soul. Here's another $3 phrase. Ex opere operantis. Now that's a $3 phrase. It means they work according to the dispositions of the one receiving them. So, that means that the sacraments are fruitful according to the degree of the love of God and the recipient. Frequency of reception in itself does not determine the progress of the soul in grace. And this is the reason. This is really, really important. If we're not saints after our First Holy Communion, it's not because there's any lack in the Most Blessed Sacrament. That's Christ there, whole and entire, body, blood, soul, and divinity. It's because of our dispositions at the moment of reception and then what we do. As the author points out, the reason this is the reason preparation for communion and thanksgiving afterwards should take priority in religious life over less consequential devotions. Close quote. It's essential. Okay, if you're a fireman and you got you gotta go, okay. But when we're going to communion, you want to spend that time preparing yourself to receive Holy Communion because it's the Almighty God coming to you. And there's only so many times. He knows that you don't. There's only so many times you get to receive Holy Communion. So you want to prepare yourself as much as possible so you're disposed as greatly as possible as you can. And this is great because you even get an absolution from anything if you got annoyed at something right beforehand when you're receiving this right, and you're receiving kneeling down. The priest is playing it your own personal benediction and placing the host on your tongue so the whole time you can be working on disposing yourself as much as possible. But then there he's present in you. You want to spend that time thanking him and talking to him about everything you need. I use this example all the time. Suppose somebody says, hey, you know, why don't you come over? I'm really looking forward to visit. You know, they keep inviting you. Finally go over to the house, knock on the door. They, they say, come on in. Hey, just step in here. They open, and they lock you in the broom closet. And then they go around, you hear them in there doing things, walking around, you go, like, what, what kind of stupidity is this? You feel completely insulted. First off, they weren't interested. And second off, they're ignoring you. But isn't that a description of most holy communions in so many of our parishes? People want to grow in holiness. They tell you that. You tell them, make a really good preparation for communion, make a good Thanksgiving. But somehow getting that donut right away is way, way more important than that Thanksgiving. You only get so many communions. Which kingdom are you seeking first? Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of dishonesty that reigns in traditional circles when it comes to certain theological realities. I'll just, I could do this all day. I'm just going to limit myself to two examples, both of which combine uh, dishonesty with a huge dose of subjectivity. Subjectivity is wishful thinking. The of trend established the canonical form necessary for Latin Rite Catholics to validly contract marriage. In the absence of a dispensation from the local bishop, one of the requirements for validity is the marriage must be celebrated, I quote, by the parish priest of the place of marriage or the local ordinary, it means the local bishop, or priest delegated by either of them, close quote. Well, a deacon with proper delegation can also witness. This isn't even debatable. We're talking about the Council of Trent here. And yet we have all these traditional Catholic couples attempting to contract marriage at independent chapels, Chapels of the Society, St. Paul's Tenth, etc. Now this for Catholic is no different than going to Justice of the Peace, the Ding Dong Wedding Bell Chapel in Reno, Nevada. They go in boyfriend and girlfriend, and they come back down the aisles boyfriend and girlfriend. Without all the graces, they so desperately If we're really serious about the truth, obviously then we want to rigorously avoid dishonesty and wishful thinking, especially in the cases where the dishonesty appeals to our own appetites and desires. Another example, consider the hierarchical constitution of the church, by that which we mean the people, under the priest, under the bishop, under the pope. That's part of the deposit of faith. That means it comes to us from Jesus Christ himself. The hierarchical constitution of the church is part of the deposit of faith. Just how is it, in traditional circles, that we've got to the point where we can convince ourselves that this is optional? This comes from Christ himself, and it's an observable, objective reality. And not to pick on him, he needs our prayers. What diocese is Bishop Williamson the bishop of? Which dicastery, which chancery, or cardinal in Rome, rather, is Bishop Williamson subject to? We all know, everyone knows, he's not the bishop of anywhere. He's not under anyone in Rome. Keep in mind that the subjective this subjection to wrong is an objective reality. It's observable. Objectively speaking, this means he's not in the proper relationship, in the proper submission to the hierarchy of the actualist church established by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Objectively speaking, then that means he's in schism, and so is everyone united with him. This is a salvation issue. Not to pick on him either. He needs our prayers. What diocese is Bishop Fillet, Bishop of? Which dicastery or cardinal in Rome is Bishop Fillet subject to? We all know. Everyone knows. He's not the bishop of anywhere, and he's not under anyone in Rome. Submission to Rome is an observable, objective reality. Objectively speaking, this means he's not in the proper relationship, and the proper submission to the hierarchy of the Church established by Jesus Christ our Lord. It objectively, means he's in schism, and so is everyone subject to him. And they'd go wild on the blogs if you said anything like that. There's not some drop-down clause, some loophole that says, these things apply except in times of crisis. When has the church not been in crisis? Oh, it goes up and down, but when has the church not been in crisis? There's not some drop-down clause that says, except in a state of emergency. What else in the deposit of faith is optional? How do we determine this according to our own tastes? By using a dowsing rod or a theological manual to see which things apply and which things don't? Seriously, what are the exact rules for picking and choosing? If we're really serious about the truth, obviously then we have to rigorously avoid dishonesty and wishful thinking, especially in the cases where the dishonesty appeals to our own appetites and desires. Each one of us needs to look into his own heart and be brutally honest with himself. Brutally honest. And you're the only one that can answer it. Do you have a simple love for the truth, regardless of how much it pleases or displeases you? I can't answer that for you, I can only answer for me. Each one of you has to answer that question. Because there's a flip side. There's a flip side that's terrifying. It's bone-chilling. In May of 1897, Pope Leo XIII, stated his encyclical on the Holy Spirit, quote, Whosoever faileth by weakness or ignorance may perhaps have some excuse before Almighty God, but he who resists the truth through malice and turns away from it Sins most grievously against the Holy Ghost. Close quote. He resists the truth through malice and turns away from it, sins most grievously against the Holy Ghost. Now I'm sure we're all well aware of it. It's a terrifying statement of our Lord. We can find it in Mark 3.29. Quote He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost shall never have forgiveness. But she'll be guilty of an everlasting sin. Close quote. Resisting the truth is one of the sins against the Holy Ghost. And I quote from a standard Catholic reference work. Quote. In particular, deliberate resistance to the known truth may be regarded as specially directed against the work of the Holy Ghost in the soul. Generally, this so hardens the soul to the inspirations of grace that repentance is unlikely. Close quote. Back to Leo XIII. Quote, "...whosoever faileth by weakness or ignorance may perhaps have some excuse before Almighty God, but he who resists the truth through malice and turns away from it, sins most grievously against the Holy Ghost. In our days, this sin has become so frequent." He's writing in 1897. "...in our days, this sin has become so frequent that those dark times seem to have come." which were foretold by St. Paul, in which men, blinded by the just judgment of God, should take falsehood for truth and should believe in the prince of this world, who is a liar and the father thereof, as a teacher of truth. As it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, 1 Timothy 4.1, God shall send them the operation of error to believe lying. The last time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to spirits of error and the doctrines of devils. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. So it's pretty much cut or dry. We have two basic choices. Do we love the truth or we'll end up loving a lie? Either we love the truth or we'll end up loving a lie? How many of us here love the truth? Look in your own heart. Be brutally honest with yourself. Do you have a simple love for the truth, regardless of how much it pleases or displeases you? Take it seriously. Be brutally honest with yourself. This isn't a salvation issue. Okay, after you've answered that question, look in your heart again ask yourself another salvation issue question. What kingdom do I customarily live in? The kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God? Remember that when our Lord is speaking of the kingdom of God, he's referring not just to heaven, but a state of being, a way of living, thinking, acting by men who are headed towards heaven. When he speaks of men seeking that first, he's referring to those men who turn their focus away from the things of this world, direct their minds and hearts towards the things of God. He's referring to men who live with their intellects guided by truth and their wills guided by charity, to men who have truly taken to heart the scripture that truth will set them free. To men who are marked with an absolute devotion to the truth, who strive to know and embrace the truth, no matter how painful it might be to them personally. To men who also recognize clearly that their wills have been made to be guided by charity, that supernatural virtue by which a man loves God above all things. He loves his neighbors himself for love of God. And as a result of that, He's also taken to heart that even if he has all knowledge and has all faith and has not charity, he is nothing. Because charity is the greatest virtue. Those men who are seeking first the kingdom of God and its justice are those men and only those men who decide to be guided by truth and charity without counting the cost. Now once we see that, It's easy to see how we can tell if we're seeking first the kingdom of God. There's any number of questions we can ask ourselves. Do I esteem, love all things God and His will, His commandments, His desires, His love? Is that first in my life? Is that truly the center of what I am and desire? Do I see the spiritual eternal things as priceless and temporal goods as of relatively small value and something only to be sought after in subordination to the kingdom of God as things which are added by God so far as they contribute to my real good? Where do I focus my attention? Are my time and money spent primarily on things that will certainly perish from the service of God? Am I a Catholic on Sunday and an American the rest of the week? Or have I truly surrendered all aspects of my life to Christ and his church? Can I honestly say, Lord, I want to accomplish thy will more than I want to follow my will? In my studies in my day-to-day life, my personal affairs, my dealings with my neighbors? Do I truly desire to know the truth? Not that it's convenient for me, truth, but all the truths proper for my state and life, no matter how painful or inconvenient they might be to me personally. Am I careful to reject and resist political correctness in all its forms? To recognize clearly that political correctness is at its root, a way of using words and ideas not as a means of conveying truths, but rather as an expression of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable to say and believe. polite company, so to speak. See, a person who buys the political correctness uh, changes or adopts his ideas, like women in Hollywood change their clothing styles. It's a question of what's in fashion. But the reason to believe things is because they're true not because they're fashionable. If there's one thing we can learn from Mars, it's that. The reason we believe things is because they're true and they're worth dying for and everything matters. Do I have a simple love for the truth regardless of how much it pleases or displeases me? Of course, we're all well aware of the names that you had called, if you don't blot by some politically correct position, you let your views be known. You're judgmental, you're a fascist, you're a misogynist. you're a patriarchal tyrant, you're a fundamentalist, blah, 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 blah. These labels are all designed to humiliate the person so they'll shut up and get on with the program, right? The point here is that political correctness is based on using two fundamental desires to control people, the desire to be accepted and the fear of being rejected. Where am I at in regards to these? Am I more worried about what he thinks of me, or what other people think of me? Do I have a simple love for the truth? Regardless of how much it pleases or displeases me, or pleases or displeases my neighbor. In my day-to-day life, in my dealing personal affairs, in my dealings with my neighbors, is charity my overriding concern? Or my thoughts, words, deeds, acts, are they measured against something else besides charity? For example, do I adjust my thoughts, my words, my acts to make things? more convenient for me? Do I adjust things to increase my popularity? Do I adjust my thoughts, words, and acts to increase my wealth or for political advantage? Do I adjust my thoughts, words, and acts to gain power, to increase my pleasure? In my day-to-day life, in my personal affairs, in my dealings with my neighbors, where do I focus my attention? Is charity my overriding concern? No matter how painful or inconvenient that might be for me personally. Because when one truly has charity, he no longer has his own agenda. No matter what cross, he wants only what's true because he wills what God wills. He no long, longer is saying with his heart, my kingdom come, but he's saying, "Thy kingdom Okay, now, given all that, and assuming that even each one of us here is not quite there yet, that still everyone here wants to truly seek the kingdom of God as justice, that each one of us truly wants to be guided by both truth and charity without conning the cost, assuming all that, let's close with a short reflection. In Luke 2.35, we read that St. Simeon speaking to Our Lady, The Presentation of the Temple says, And thy own soul a a sword shall pierce, that out of many hearts thoughts may be revealed. By the piercing of Our Lady's sorrowful, and immaculate heart, many graces have been poured out. Those graces will flow from our heart, and each one of us will accept those graces. And each one of us who is open to those graces, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Mediatrix of all graces, will pour those graces out into all who ask for and accept them. Within the very depths of our being, the truth will be known. In fact, our own thoughts will be revealed insofar as we accept the graces or reject them. So many souls don't ask for graces nor do they accept grace. Instead, they turn towards and choose the kingdom of this world. In that very act, their hearts are revealed. In that very act, they choose things as they want them to be, not as they actually are. In that very act, they do not fully embrace the truth. So even though it may even appear at times they're on the right path, it's what in their their heart that really matters. Where their heart is, that's where they actually are. Our Lady's sorrowful immaculate heart was martyred with her son because that's where her heart was at. So although she did not die physically at the foot of the cross, she's the queen of martyrs because her heart was completely and fully united to that of her son in his death on the cross. So each one of us should look in his heart with brutal honesty and ask himself, Am I asking for the grace to truly live in the Kingdom of God? Am I asking that my intellect be guided by truth, and my will be guided by charity? Am I asking for the grace of an absolute devotion to truth? And it is a grace. It's a very rare grace. We have got to ask for it. Am I asking for the grace of an absolute devotion to truth, the grace to strive to know and embrace the truth, no matter how painful or inconvenient it might be for me personally. Am I asking for the grace to love God above all things? My neighbor is myself for love of God. Am I asking for those graces? Am I accepting the graces Our Lady has for me? Or am I content with where I am in the world? we need to look in our hearts with brutal honesty. Maybe we failed, denied our Lord, fallen short, succumbed to political correctness, failed our marriage commitments, failed fallen into contraception, activities outside of marriage, struggles with perversion, websites, duties in state of life, failed our witness to Christ, involvement, things like immoral wars, Crooked business deals, dishonest politics, you may have been involved in criminal behavior, drunkenness, drug use, you may have been making bad confessions, sacrilegious communions, broken our communion with the church. Whatever the case might be, it's time to repent. It's time to repent. Reject anything and everything that's not pleasing to God. It's time to seek first the kingdom of God and his justice. It's time to be guided by both truth and charity without counting the cost. It's time to become faithful witnesses to the truth. It's time to become faithful witnesses to the truth on a daily basis. It's time to become faithful witnesses to truth incarnate. On a daily basis, it's time to join ranks with St. Genesius and all the holy martyrs to be faithful witnesses to truth incarnate on a daily basis in all the circumstances of our life. And when we live like that, when we live for the truth, we'll be well prepared. Die for the truth.